If you were to ask me to describe the Christian life, define the Christian life, tell someone what is, what is Christianity all about, I would describe it this way, is following Jesus and helping others do the same. I know that's a very simple statement. It's not simplistic by any means. It's a profound statement. Christianity is following Jesus and helping others do the same. And when we follow Jesus, it doesn't constrain us in the sense of limiting our lives and making it hard and narrow and, and not any fun. When we follow Jesus, it opens things up and expands our life and fills us with joy. It's an amazing life. It is the best life we could possibly live. But as we follow Jesus, he, he teaches us and guides us, and we, we learn to live as he lived. And there are many times that we're faced with uncomfortable things that he asks us to do. But that's part of the way that we grow. And in this morning's text that John was reading, Jesus is described as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So I have titled this message, Friend of Sinners. (laughs) Jesus is a friend of sinners. And I'd like this morning to just dive in a little bit to that thought, expand upon what it means, because not only is that what Jesus does, if we're following him, that's what we need to do. And to be honest with you, it makes me a little nervous. (laughs) It makes me a little uncomfortable, and it probably should make you a little bit uncomfortable. It pushes us out of what uh, we, it was normally our comfortable life. But as we look at this text that was read and the context of when Jesus is speaking, there was a rising skepticism about Jesus. And part of that was because if they're announcing him to be the Messiah, the king that's coming, he's the one to rescue us, they were, they were misunderstanding some things, and they were expecting him to overthrow, some of them expecting him to overthrow the Roman Empire, to bring a great military to bear upon society, and to ride in on his white horse and conquer the nations. And yet, this time that Jesus comes, he is coming for the souls of men. There is a day that we read about in Revelation that he will come in power and might to rule and to reign over all the earth. But this particular coming of Jesus and presenting himself is to rescue people, to rescue their souls. So the context really here is skepticism. We're not sure. And they they were skeptics about Jesus and also John the Baptist. In fact, John the Baptist was even sending his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one? Now John, he did know that, that Jesus was the one, but maybe a little bit of an impatience. Maybe things aren't happening. And so there's a question. And so Jesus confronts these people about their inability to discern the times. You'll you'll see this as a familiar statement with him is you have eyes, but you don't see. And you have ears, but you don't hear. 
You can tell when the, there's a red sky in the morning that the storm's going to come, a red sky at night, it's going to be calm. But you're not discerning the times. And you're not realizing that John the Baptist is the prophet spoken about in Isaiah that has come to announce, he is the forerunner, announcing the coming of the Messiah, and that Jesus who has come is actually functioning and living exactly the way the Scriptures taught. So not only were they not seeing it, they were becoming critical. Critical, they, the comment is you're, you're like children in the marketplace. You know, the children are playing, and you know, there's a funeral music, and they don't calm down. And there's wedding music, and they're not getting all excited, but they're not even responding to what's happening. You're like children that are not perceiving. What they said about John the Baptist was, he's a crazy man. If you look in the Greek, that's what it actually means. He's a crazy man. He's out there in the wilderness shouting for people to repent. (laughs) He's wearing uh, camel hair and he's eating locusts and wild honey. And he's like a scary man. You know, his eyes were probably really big, and he's probably standing pointing at people and calling on everybody to repent, which repentance means change change your minds, change your ways. In other words, I'm I'm going this way, and a repentance is a turn. And he said, you turn, repent, because the Messiah is coming. That was his role. And then Jesus, who comes after John the Baptist, is the one who offers salvation to the world. The Messiah comes to offer salvation. And this is the great victory that Jesus wins. It's not a military conquest. It is a spiritual conquest. And that is what we are engaged in as well, is a, the spiritual conquest of every soul being brought into God's family, being forgiven of their sin. Now, they said that John the Baptist was demon-possessed, basically, <laughs> He's a crazy man. What did they say about Jesus? Said that he was basically too social. He's, he's drinking, he's a drunk, and he's a glutton. Why did they say that? Well, I don't think Jesus was drunk, and I don't think he was overeating. He's the perfect God-man. But since he was with those people that do that, sitting at the same table... Why, well, you know what? He probably does. And this made them very uncomfortable. And wisdom proves all this to be true. The very last part of the the verse says, Wisdom will prove all of this to be true, that John is the forerunner announcing Jesus, and Jesus, who is come, is the Messiah, and yes, He is the one that is sitting down with all the people eating and drinking, the sinners. So when you and I are called to follow Jesus, to follow him, it brings us to uncomfortable places and to do uncomfortable things. To be a friend of sinners does make us a bit nervous. But let's explore what that means. When we talk about a sinner, you go make a friend with a sinner. Who are we talking about? I know everybody's going to go like this. <laughs> Look from side to side. Who are, who are the sinners? I'm glad you asked that question. 
to the Jews, a sinner was a Gentile. I mean, all Gentiles were sinners. In fact, they would call them Gentile sinners or Gentile dogs. Now, that kind of language goes still around the world. Why is it? Because, well, you're not Jew. You're not a Jew. And so that's synonymous. You are lesser. And I think that people can tend to do that when someone is not, they're different than me. They're not like me. Uh, they don't look like me. They don't act like me. We have different, they have different customs, habits, values. And the right way to live is the way we're living. Now, the Jews, led by the Pharisees, and, you know, we, we use that name now, Pharisee, to, to mean hypocrite. But back in the day when the Pharisees were, were alive and functioning, people just had this great respect for them as being just awesome spiritual people. And, boy, they're the ones that never sin, never do anything wrong. And of course, they tell you about that, too. But Jewish leaders were criticizing Jesus because he was being a friend of people who were considered sinners, which would include all Gentiles and anybody who did not keep the law or keep their customs. Now, the Pharisees were really good because they didn't figure that Ten Commandments was enough. And so they decided to add to it. So they, you know, we're very creative that way, aren't we? Just We're going to add, so they had some 600 and some laws you got to keep. And they were so meticulous to keep all those laws. So anybody who's not really living that way is a sinner. Now, you can see the danger that this will pose. When someone is a hypocrite, it means that they're doing the same thing. In other words, they're guilty, but they don't see it. And this is one of the biggest problems, you know, with the Pharisees. They were self-righteous, they were proud, they were arrogant, but they didn't see their own sin. It's like Paul was talking about the person that will just sing out really loud and they can't carry a tune, and uh, they just sing louder and louder. <laughs> no, don't, don't quit singing, but uh, we'll just all sing loud enough to drown you out if that's the case. But... It's, it's the obvious. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you, you may remember this, that how can you help a person get the speck of sawdust out of their eye when you've got a plank in your own eye? I mean, it's, a, it's a, an exaggerated statement. But, you know, we're, we're very good at saying, oh, you made a mistake there. I'm so, I'm so sorry. You send there, send there. And, you know, we're just kind of inspectors of sinners. And we note all of the bad things that people do. But he says, you can't see well enough to get the speck of sawdust out of their eye because you've got a board stuck in your own eye. So who is a sinner from God's perspective? You know, the Jews would say, anybody who's a Gentile, anybody who doesn't keep the law, anybody who doesn't dress like we dress, live like we live, do like we do, they're a sinner. But God has a very clear description of here's what a sinner is. In Romans 3 and verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God, what it means here is God's perfect standard. 
And his standard is perfection. Matthew 5.48, it says, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So God's standard is for all of us to be perfect. Well, (laughs) you know what that means. There's not one of us here. There's not one person in the world who's perfect. So all have sinned. That means, yes, the Gentiles and the Jews and the Pharisees and everybody on the face of the earth has sinned. That's what that means. All means all. God has a perfect standard. We have fallen short of that, and we do not meet it. There's a great um, passage that I think just describes this in Romans. I'd like to just read this section because it, it helps us clarify how God defines the effect of sin on us. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? This is speaking, the Jews speaking. Do the Jews have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Well, that just to me is very clear. You know, it's just one thing about God. He just got, that's very clear. Okay. Everybody is guilty of sin. So a sinner is someone who sins. They're guilty of sin. Now there are obvious ones that we can all note. You know, you pick up the paper or you look on the news, you say, I I just can't believe someone would do that. I mean, that happens all the time. How could someone do something like that? Back during World War II and following World War II, These three men, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao Zedong, were responsible for a total total death toll of about 200 million people. But you know what Stalin said? You know, you kill one person, it's a murder. You kill a million, it's a statistic. It's hard for us to even grasp that. So when you think of men like this, or someone who is a, a... perverted person or a mass murderer or a uh, a deviant of some kind that has abused children, we'd say hell is not hot enough. They deserve punishment. They are the worst of sinners. But it's interesting what James, uh, the brother of Jesus, said. He said, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet fails in one point, he is guilty of all. Isn't that something? Whoever keeps the whole law, in other words, you keep all of it, but you fail at one point, you're now guilty of all of it. It makes you stop and think of the power of that, that every single person is guilty as everyone else. We're sinners. Now, how do you identify a Christian. I would say this, that we are sinners who have been forgiven. Or you'd say this, that we have been delivered. We have been rescued by Jesus. And it's interesting how you don't find people who have been forgiven referred to any longer as sinners. They're referred to as children, God's children. Isn't that great? (laughs) 
I think it's an amazing thing. But if someone, if I compare myself to someone else, I don't say, well, you're a sinner and I'm a child of God. I say, I'm, I'm a forgiven sinner. That's the way Paul described himself. I'm a forgiven sinner. But God has called us to make friends with those who have not yet experienced forgiveness. And Jesus was spending time with people who had not yet experienced forgiveness. And yes, it is, and it should be to a degree, out of your comfort zone. So the approach that he took is building friendships and relationships with people who didn't believe. Now, he had a lot of relationships with people who did believe, with his disciples, his apostles, his followers. But it goes beyond that. And each of us, as we follow Christ, will learn to experience that same genuine love and concern for others. So we're challenged to make friends with sinners. And you might ask the question, well, why should I do that? What, what would be my motivation? Because right now I'm not feeling a lot of motivation <laughs> to go out of my comfort zone, to make friends with sinners, people that may be doing things that I don't approve of or don't like or make me feel really awkward. They're not in my social network. How do I respond to that? What's the why? And I would say this, first of all, because God loves sinners. God loves sinners. You say, well, I thought he loves me. He does love you, and he loves Christians. He loves believers. But God loves sinners. So that ought to be a motive enough. If he loves these people, which, which ones of those sinners? All of those sinners. You mean like people like Hitler? People like perverts? People like murderers? All sinners. He loves all. So all have sinned. And we also note that Jesus Christ came and died for the world. Second Peter 3.9 says, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In Acts 17.30, it says he commands all men everywhere to repent. And of course, probably one of the most familiar verses to many is John 3.16, for God so loved the world. If you think about what the world means, it means all of humanity, every single soul, no matter how twisted, how perverted, how wicked, how many sins they've committed, He loves the self-righteous, hypocrite Pharisee, and he loves the worst of sinners that that Pharisee is condemning. All have sinned, and Jesus came to save all men. That's an amazing thought. And it says that whoever believes in him, whoever, in other words, of all who have sinned, he came and died for all, and whoever believes shall have eternal life. What a great message. What a great thought. And the extent of his love, I want you to think about this. The extent of the love of Christ, it spans all time, it goes to all places, and is offered to all people. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. Jesus came for sinners. 
He loved sinners. He was a friend to sinners. He built bridges and relationships to sinners. He spent time. He ate with them. He went to them. And it made everybody feel uncomfortable. But, but this is why he came. So the first reason, God loves sinners. Second reason, Jesus died for sinners. <laughs> In Luke 19, 10, it says, For the Son of Man, which the way Jesus described himself, the Son of Man has come. This is the reason I came. I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Think about those words. I have come to seek, and it's like radar, okay? I'm coming to seek and to save sinners. I came for sinners. That was his purpose. And so he was not limited to the temple or the synagogue, though he went there. He went to the big city, the small town, and the out-of-way places. He went to, to... the rich and the poor, the healthy and the sick, the upstanding citizens, the criminals, the murderers, and the ill repute. He went to all people. And again, it caused a great deal of discomfort. He was no respecter of persons. Now, if this is the way Jesus lived, this is the way we are called to live, because Jesus, when just before he ascended into heaven, he'd been crucified, paid for our sins, buried, rose again, conquered death to give us eternal life. And before he ascends up to heaven, he says this. He said, just as my Father sent me, I am sending you. So the Father sent the Son to save sinners. Jesus said, I am sending you. Now you go make friend of sinners. This is why we're here. Now I think... But I thought we were just here to have Bible study and go to church. Now, I'm all for that. And you know what? It's, it's, it's a central part of my life. It should be, I hope, of your life to be in God's Word, to be in prayer, and to be with other believers. Because the reason why we gather on Sundays is to encourage each other. That's really the main reason for church, is, is to edify, to encourage, to help, to strengthen But the reason why we're on earth is to share the good news with sinners, just like someone shared the good news with this sinner. And if we miss that, we might as well just go to heaven. Now, you said, I'm all for that. (laughs) I'm I'm all for that. But when you stop to think about it, I don't know if I'm really to check out yet because there's still friends I know, people I know that I care about deeply that have not put their faith and trust in Christ. So there's so many things we'll enjoy in heaven. We're going to enjoy our fellowship and eating together, drinking together, uh, spending time working together, having dreams and visions and being busy in heaven. And heaven's going to be a wonderful place. But the one thing we can't do up there is to tell sinners the good news. So this is why we came. You know, one of the, the two funerals I was watching this week, one was, as I shared last Sunday, Marilee Soderstrom, less known uh, than Billy Graham, but faithful servant of the Lord. And I thought about Billy Graham, something unique about his life. I mean, he, he lived to be 99. I think the most powerful preacher of the gospel of the 20th century. It's my opinion. Uh, he counseled 13 presidents. Now, this is what I find amazing. And I'm not saying he's a perfect man, and some may disagree with this 
uh, the, the fact that he didn't get all messed up with politics. But I want you to follow this with me. He was asked by Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, the second Bush, Obama, and Trump. Thirteen presidents invited him into the White House as counsel and friend. You think about that. How, how was he able, how was he able to still minister to a Republican and a Democrat? Now, you've watched the, 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 the presidential races, haven't you? I mean, and you, all you got to do is watch TV. You know, you go to Fox and you go to CNN and then go to Fox and you go, ah, oh, yeah, yeah. It's like crazy. And I thought so many Christians are, are fighting down on this level. And, and they, they lose the ability to transcend those things and share the good news. I feel this, that Billy Graham was able to maintain his character. You think of that. No scandal. 99 years. No scandal. And I can tell you this. When you're a preacher of the gospel, Satan comes after you. He co- and, a, and the more you have a, uh, you're a public figure, the more Satan will just come after you to destroy you. He maintained his integrity. His character, there was no scandal. He preached the pure, faithful, simple gospel of Jesus for all those years. And he kept the main thing the main thing. Now, do you think Billy Graham had opinions on politics? Sure he did. But I think that the things that made a difference for him, what made a difference was every one of those 13 presidents believed in his character, his authenticity, and his genuine compassion. In other words, Mr. President, I care about you. And he was counsel to them. And I believe this, that, and I'm not saying you don't vote, you don't get into politics, I'm not saying that, but there is a bigger picture here. There is something bigger to be won, and that is the soul of the individual. And, you know, when, when sinners, you know what sinners do? Sinners sin. People that don't have Jesus they live like they don't have Jesus. That, so if you go and try and, and fix all the way that they're living and they still don't have Jesus, you get a person to quit doing drugs, quit drinking, quit murdering people, but if they don't have Jesus, they're still going to die. And this is what I, I think we need to get to and to, to transcend that in what we, and how we witness. This is why we're here. And the way that we will reach sinners is not, you know, standing up on a platform and saying, you sinners, let me tell you the truth. You know, what Jesus did is he got down on their level, sat at their table, ate their food, drank their wine, had conversations, and built friendships. Isn't that a little awkward? (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot easier to stand up on a stump and point a finger. Building relationships takes time. And often it's messy. So where do we begin? How do I make friends with sinners? In a moment, I'm going to give you what I, you know, four steps that I've just kind of worked in my own mind, four steps that we can take to make friends with sinners. But before I do that, I want to address some of our collective fears and concerns because when <laughs> the moment I say I'm going to make a friend with a sinner, I go, okay, now, what does that mean? It's not an easy thing to do. And it means developing a different social 
circle because here's what happens. At some point in your life, you come to realize, I need Christ. I need Jesus. I, I need to believe upon Him. He washes away my sins. I become a child of God. I'm starting to read my Bible. I'm starting to pray. I'm going to church. I'm building new friends. And pretty soon, we have cut ourselves off from the rest of the world. And I call this isolationism. <laughs> we get busy in our Christian world. We can often be fearful of rejection by people or being contaminated because we are warned in Scriptures about being contaminated by things in the world. But we can forget who we are. There's a concern that associated with sinners might have a negative effect upon my life and might have a negative effect on my family. Is that true? It is. It should be a concern. It, it, it needs to be something that you work through with wisdom. But Jesus still, if we see the end result, I think he protected his integrity. He protected his character. And he was doing this. He was sitting at the table with sinners. And so there, there has to be a right way. I think the tendency is uh, to swing one way or another. One is to be isolated from sinners. It's like we know we go into our neighborhoods, drive in, the garage door goes up, we go in, it shuts. <laughs> Why? Because you got sinners on my street. <laughs> you know, we just moved into a new new neighborhood, and every one of my neighbors is great. That's never happened to me before. There's always one. Of course, they may say that about me, but <laughs> but that's that's how we live today. We kind of go in, shut the door, go about our business go to work, do our business, and then we go to church. Oh, I want friends. I want to go out to eat with them, have them over to the house. We're going to go out and we do everything in Christian circles, and we become isolated. I liken it to the church we build. It's a big, beautiful, magnificent church. And we all get inside. And then we build a moat around the church and a drawbridge so no one can get in until we go out on our missionary activities. And so we drop the drawbridge and we ride our horses out, throw out some food, throw out some Bibles, <laughs> get back and say, oh man, wasn't that great serving God? But we've become so isolated, we no longer have relationships. The other, the other response is um, assimilation into the world. In other words, you know what, we're not, we're not having any, even any doors on our place. We don't have a moat. And you know what, we're just going to go be like them to win them. And so whatever the sinners are doing, we're going to do because we're under grace. And I'm just going to go live like they live, and they're going to like me so much, they're going to want to be a Christian. Well, the problem is, they're not going to see any difference in your life than what they already have. <laughs> So I, I would say we don't isolate, we don't assimilate. What we do is we engage them, we engage sinners, we engage unbelievers. And we do that with a focus. You know, I, I thought a long time, how do, how do you discern what to do? What, what is kind of going over here and this really isn't healthy for me? Because I think there's some things you could do as a believer that, that, that are not healthy for your thinking, your mind, your life to be engaged in.
but I don't want to run all the way over and, and I'm, I'm completely isolated from the world. And I think it's a mindset. This is how I would state it. Focus on loving people, not on being liked by people. i say that again. Focus on loving people, not on being liked by people. If, if you focus on being liked, like being cool, then you're going to start making compromises. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna give up what you value. I've seen pastors do this. You know, I've you know, been doing this for a few years now, and, and I've seen a lot of guys say, you know what I'm doing? I'm going around and doing a survey in the community, and I'm asking all the people what they want in the church. I thought, well, <laughs> you know, what if, what if that's not what God wants? <laughs> what if it's, you know, you've created a... Hey, this is what we want, we like this, we like this, and I'm just going to be all of these things so you'll like coming to church. So you get a lot of people come in, but you have nothing to say. There's really nothing to say. But if you love people, you show patience and kindness and humility. You love people. You express love to people. You have a love for God. You know, when you have a great love for God and love for people, it's going to keep you on the right path. That's the way Jesus, Jesus genuinely loved his Father, and he genuinely loved people. So I'm, if I really love you, I'm not going to just tell you what you want to hear, but I'm going to care about you. It's going to be genuine. It's going to be real. I'm going to do things that show that love and reflect the love of Christ. So how do we make friends with sinners? Here are four steps I think we can take. Number one, ask. Ask God for help. You probably notice this. Whenever I give you a list like this, I always have prayer as the first thing. <laughs> because it is the first and the enduring thing that we do. Whenever you're faced with, with taking a step forward in your Christian life, the first thing you do is pray. God, I need your help. I need your help. And God will always help you do what he's already told you to do. That's one of the great comforts. If, if something is taught in the Scripture, and this is the will of God for your life, and you pray about it, he's going to answer that prayer. Because that's what, that's what he wants. So I begin to pray, Lord, would you help me? Help me. Be a good representative of the love of God to sinners. Help me not to be isolated from them. Help me not to just be assimilated into the way that they live. Help me to engage them in the proper way. So asking God for help in his direction and leadership in this is the most important thing. Secondly, look. Look around you. Who's presently in your life? Make a list. Neighbors. You know, I was telling you before, one of the bad things about preaching is i got to go through all this all week, and it gets very convicting. Um, I, I was telling Mike Skibby earlier, I said, you know, this whole series, like every week, it's like, Lord, man. So you say, leave me alone. I don't say that to him, but it's like, because it's starting to, to affect me. And I, you know, I think, you know, here I am, I'm a pastor, Okay been serving God like this, you know, it's so easy for pastors to, to disengage from unbelievers because you're so busy helping Christians. And, you know, I'm running here, running there, and then it's like it dawns on me, Matt, this is why you're here. 
Not because you're a pastor, but because you're a Christian. And you get so busy, you know, reading your Bible and praying and helping Christians, running here and there. Now, I have, I have a lot of unbelieving friends in the sense of acquaintances. That's how I describe acquaintances. I say, hi, how you doing? I'm doing fine. How you doing? That's about it. Talk to my neighbor. But, but usually it's brief and short. We're not sitting down having a meal. We're not hanging out. We're not going out and doing things together because I'm too busy. <laughs> uh, this, this hits home for me. If I start to list my neighbors, my coworkers, all of the people that I cross paths with on a fairly regular basis, And I'm start writing, and I've started doing this, writing all their names down, and then praying about this. Lord, you've brought me into some kind of connection. Now, what's what's the next step? You ask, you look, and then engage. You build a relationship. You say, I don't got time to go hang out at the bowling alley. Well, maybe you like bowling. Um, That'd be one example. What about hunting, fishing, hiking, bird watching? I'm trying to think of things. Book club, golf, tennis, Zumba, CrossFit, kids' sports, kids are getting together, arts and crafts, music, board games, motorcycles, bicycles, animals. There are a thousand ways to connect in your culture. Remember one guy saying to me, just go, go, what do you like to do? Say, you like motorcycles. Well, go find five guys that don't know the Lord that ride motorcycles and invite them over. Go on a ride. Spend time together. You like music? Go play together. You like golf? Just don't go with the people that know the Lord. Go with people that God's brought into your life. Engage these. Hobby, sport, whatever. Then go out for coffee. Have a cookout. Spend time. Have them over for lunch. Create a conversation and keep building relational bridges with people. Now, you can't do that with everyone, but, but as you're praying through this and looking around, God's going to put on your heart and give you opportunity to engage someone who doesn't yet know the Lord. And, and see, here's the problem with this. We think, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Oh, I, I need to give them the gospel. I need to tell them about Jesus. No, you need to build a friendship. You need to build a friendship. That's what you need to do. And that's not hard. It takes time, it takes intentionality, it takes effort. And then the last point, you'll like this one, wait. Wait. Ask, look, engage, wait. Wait for what? Wait for God to open the door. You don't need to kick it down. You don't need to kick it down. You wait for God to work. If someone said 90% of the time you're building a bridge... 10% 10% of the time, you're walking across it. So what? Build the bridge of relationship. Build the bridge of friendship. And it may, be, it may be a week, two weeks, but God will, through some circumstance, some event, have them probably bring up the subject. I've been thinking. I wonder, can we get together and talk? So something's happened in their life. Something's come up. They're facing something. But because you show your love, you value them, you enjoy spending time with them, they respect your character. They respect your heart. And God begins to open up the door. And you know what? He will give you what you need to say. He will give you what you need to say. You know, I, I thought about this. If you were to stop and think about it, you know, we've got a small group of people, but if you were to think about every 
person that I connect with during the week. And every person all of you connect with. That's a lot of people, isn't it? The possibility of building friendships that are a bridge to sharing the greatest news ever told. And it's not a trick. It's not, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretend like I'm your friend and I'm going to pretend like I like doing this. Now, I'm not, some of us, I'm not going to get into a knitting circle and I'm not doing Zumba. Um, but, uh, you know, ride motorcycles. I could do that. Do some other things, play some golf, go skiing, things I enjoy doing, go hang out with some other guys. The reason I do it is because I do genuinely care because that's what Jesus did. He genuinely cared and loved sinners. It's not an easy thing to do. So I ask God for his help. I look for all those people I connect with in various ways. And as I continue to pray and look, I engage in a thousand different ways that are possible to build a friendship, relationship. It doesn't need to be expensive. A cup of coffee, going out for lunch, spending time together. So this is what love does. This is what love does. You know, we've been talking in this series that we've been preaching uh, over the last several weeks about living life on purpose. Living life on purpose. And living life on purpose is living like Jesus. And what does it look like? It, well, it shows compassion. It's a life that shows compassion. It shows forgiveness. It shows generosity. It serves others. When you live a life like Jesus, you make friend with, friends with sinners. And so my prayer today is that we do a little self-examination and in a good way and ask the Lord, what, what can I do? What, how can I start responding to this? To pray, Lord, in living my busy life, I've been failing to really build. This is, this is my prayer, so you can kind of, Lord, in my busy life of serving you, I've failed to make friends with sinners. That's a confession. Real friendships. So, Lord, help me. Help me to do so. Help me to be intentional with what matters to you most, the souls of people. Lord, this is our prayer. This is our prayer. And, Lord, I stand at the front of the line confessing I get so busy doing things for you in Christian community that I really don't reach out like you reached out. And Lord, I thank you that at one point you reached out to me and saved me from my sin and gave me eternal life. Lord, help me to be so glad, so joyful for what you've done for me that I would not spend my time pointing my finger judging others, but just so overflowing with good news building friendships, building relationships. Lord, I pray our entire church would be that way, compassionate, forgiving, generous, serving, and making friends with sinners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.